0: Well, thank you. Good morning, Glad Tidings Church. I'll bring you greetings from the congregation of uh, Coromdale. They're actually gathering uh, right about now, and so they are sharing me with you. They're pleased to do that, and I'm pleased to be here with you and uh, serving you this morning. Uh, you all believe in the Holy Spirit here, right? Yeah. Uh, we do, too. We believe in the Holy Spirit, too. We just haven't told our bodies that yet. So, like, in my church, there was one lady who used to say amen every once in a while when I preach, and then she moved. And so I feel kind of alone. So, here's what was cool, is I was listening to some of Pastor Walt's sermons to get ready to preach here, and I realized, man, I can hear in this, in the sort of sermon recording, the congregation, like, engaging and talking back, and I was thinking, Oh, this is going to be fun this morning. We're going to have us some fun looking at the Word of God. So uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, My grandmother told me one time, there are two things that you never talk about in polite company. Do you know what they are? Politics and religion. And we are going to talk about both this morning. So I hope you are ready. Um, The sermon series you've been in is this, this series, Culture Shock, Turning Cultural Challenges into Missional Opportunities. And let's be honest... One of the biggest cultural challenges we face today is the reality of politics in America, right? I mean, you all, I'm sure, have been seeing what's been going on just the past couple days in Virginia. And that's just a little microcosm of the unrest and the division and the turmoil and the chaos that is present in our nation right now. These are challenging times. And they're challenging times for us to understand what does it mean to live as a convictional Christian in the midst of this sort of cultural and political unrest. So let's be honest about a couple things up front, okay? First of all, let's be honest about the fact that when we talk about politics, all of us are a little flinchy right now. Right. Like you used to be able to make jokes about politics. Nobody does that anymore. Like nothing's funny anymore. It's just sort of like it's a raw nerve. Right. Politics exposes this sense of sort of raw emotion within us. And so we're so overloaded with news and commentary and fake news and whatever else that whenever anybody says, hey, let's talk about politics. I think, do we have to we just not talk about that? So let's just acknowledge that this is a tough subject for us to engage, and all of us probably are a little bit flinchy this morning. Uh, Second, let's admit that we're living at a very odd moment in our nation's history, right? Um, Not least because we have a reality TV star as our president, which is unusual, right? So never before in the history of America have you been able to turn on your TV and have to think about, is this Celebrity Apprentice or is this a White House press conference, Like those two things never used to get confused, but now they sometimes do. And so this is just an odd moment. In addition to just politics always being interesting, this is a particularly challenging and odd moment in our nation. But it's not such an odd moment in the history of the church. In fact, Christians throughout history have faced all kinds of challenging political circumstances. Let me tell you about one of them. In the year 64 AD, a massive fire destroyed most of the city of Rome. And the rumor was that the emperor Nero himself had started the fire. And so here's how the Roman historian Tacitus describes what happened next. He writes, No human effort could make the rumor disappear that Nero had somehow ordered the fire. Therefore... In order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians. First, those were seized who admitted their faith. And then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses and set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle. People began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. In the midst of that kind of persecution, in the midst of that kind of turmoil, the Apostle Peter told the Christians in his day, honor the emperor. So whatever issues you have with any political figure alive and at work in the world today, those issues pale in comparison to the challenges our Christian ancestors faced in the first century. And so, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to the book of First Peter this morning. I want us to consider other things this apostle Peter says in the context of this kind of political environment. So, uh, you'll find the book of First Peter toward the end of the New Testament, almost to Revelation. It's kind of a small book, so you're going to have to take your time finding it. And um, I'm going to read for us First Peter chapter 2, verses 13-17, through 17, which is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. Um, Peter writing to the church in the first century. So I'll read this text out loud and then we'll sort of walk our way through it and focus on some of the particular things it has to teach us. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of God. So I, I want you to focus particularly with me on verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 2, because it sort of gives us the core exhortation around which the rest of this text is built. Notice what it says in verse 16. Live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. Christian people are free people, Amen. Jesus Christ has set us free. And yet, here's what I notice. I notice among American Christians, particularly in the realm of politics, we seem kind of bound up and wound tight. Don't we? Like, um, some Christians I've noticed are are wound tight with defensiveness. Uh, For instance, perhaps some of you um, are hopeful about Trump and his administration and and what it might represent for our country. And so when you when anyone critiques him, you sort of feel like you need to defend sort of wound up with defensiveness. Um, Other Christians, I know, are wound tight with worry and fear because they're actually gravely concerned about what a Trump administration might represent. And so they're concerned that we're in a, a very, very dangerous time and it feels like the sky is falling and they're a little bit bound up with worry. And then there's a third uh, category of people I've noticed. Uh, of people who are wound tight with cynicism. Like they're sort of jaded about the whole reality of the political process. And so their cynicism sort of oozes out on social media and in their conversations. Yeah, and the scriptures challenge us to ask this question. Uh, why are we so bound up? Why aren't we living as people who are free? What would it mean? What would it mean to live as those who are free, even as we engage something as challenging as politics in America? So here's what I want to show you this morning. I want to show you that the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free for a whole different kind of engagement in politics. Uh, The gospel does not just bring us freedom from sin, though it does bring that praise the Lord, but it also brings freedom from fear. And freedom from shame and freedom from rigidity and freedom from cynicism. There's a whole host of freedoms that Jesus welcomes us into through his death and resurrection. As those who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to live as people who are free. And I want to show you this morning what that means for us. And so for those of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, I want to show you what you're free for. And for those of you who might be here who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus, I want to show you the kind of freedom Jesus beckons you into through faith in him. So we're going to look this morning in this text at four ways the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us for a different kind of engagement in politics. Okay, four ways the gospel frees us for a whole different kind of engagement in politics. Here's the first one through Jesus Christ, we are free to submit. We are free to submit. Notice verse 13 of 1 Peter 2. It says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject for the Lord's sake. In other words, because we have submitted ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now free to submit ourselves to human authority, whether that be governors Emperors, presidents, mayors, school teachers, whatever authority we may be under, we are free to submit ourselves, not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake. And unless you understand that we submit to authority for the Lord's sake, you will have challenges in submitting to authority, right? I mean, let's be honest. None of us have a problem submitting to authority figures that we trust and respect and think are wonderful people. It's just that politics is not full of those people, right? Those folks aren't necessarily uh, prevalent in the world of politics. And Peter says, as a Christian, regardless of what's true of the authority figures around you, you are free to submit for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake. Now, I'm a skeptic. I'm a, I'm a sort of critically minded person. And so for me, uh, here's the question that rises up in my mind. As soon as I read this verse, I think, well, hold on, Peter every human institution? Like, uh, what about leaders who are corrupt? What about governments that are unjust? Really? What does it mean to submit to every human institution? Well, we're going to answer that challenge in a minute. The first thing I want you to see is that from the Bible's point of view, submission to earthly authority is a subset of submission to the Lord. Um, we submit to human authorities because we submit to God. And that does not mean that God is okay with whatever human authorities do. Right? Like the fact that God asks us to submit to authority does not mean God smiles upon every action of the authorities. Here's what we have to recognize. Here's what the Bible teaches consistently is that authority is good even when the authorities are bad. Like, the fact that there are bad teachers does not mean education is bad. The fact that there are bad police officers does not mean law enforcement is bad. The fact that there are bad authority figures does not mean authority is bad. Right? Authority is a gift from God. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world without any structure? A world without governing authorities. It would be anarchy and chaos and every person for themselves... God in his common grace gives us authorities, even corrupt authorities, even bad authorities provide for us at least some sense of structure and order that allows our lives to flourish. We are um, in a stable society because rulers create laws and economic policies and social order, and not all of those are always good or just, but the existence of authority itself in society is a gift from God. And so we are free by the Lord Jesus Christ to submit to authority. That's the first thing Peter wants to say is, listen, be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to human authorities. But notice, the text doesn't stop there, right? And it doesn't stop there because of the the question, well, what do you mean every authority? What else do we need to see about the freedom of the gospel besides just that it frees us to submit to authority? Here's the second thing we see. In Jesus Christ, we are free to subvert. Free to submit, but also free to subvert, which I admit is a dangerous word choice, but hang with me here, all right? Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The word subvert in its Latin root means... To turn from beneath. So here's what I'm suggesting. There is a submission that still seeks to change the status quo. There is a submission that still seeks change, right? When Christians are under bad authority, what do we do? Well, we do good. And in doing good, we work for the right kind of change in a way that silences the ignorance of foolish people. This should not be surprising to you. This is what the best kind of Christian social action has always looked like. All truly Christian approaches to political change rely on subversion through doing good. That is what Jesus said. We don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil by doing good. That's the book of Romans, I think, although it's a free quote, so don't quote me on that. I'll look it up later. Let me read to you, uh, just to establish this, that this is what has always driven the greatest Christian approaches to social change. Let me read to you from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Here's what he says. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust, and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to rouse the conscience of the community, is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. Friends, Martin Luther King Jr. knew and understood that the gospel made him free to subvert, to work for change by doing good in a way that silences the ignorance of foolish people. See, there are two ways to fight corrupt power structures. The, the world's way is to fight power with power, right? United States, North Korea, right? That's, just, that's what we're in right now fight power with power. And here's what we notice whenever we take the approach of trying to fight power with power. Here's what always happens. Just study history. Here's what you see. The oppressed end up becoming the oppressors, right? Because if we've been oppressed and now we have power, what do we use our power to do? We use it to pay back those who have oppressed us. We use it to exact human vengeance. That's the nature and the flow of history. But you see, there's a different way to fight unjust power, and that's to fight power not with power, but with subversion, with the doing of good. It's to fight power by working on the conscience. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. did so brilliantly. He worked on the conscience of a nation. Um, He fought power by subversively doing good and by appealing to the natural moral law that's present within every one of us because God has written it on our hearts. And in doing so... He changed the course of history and brought dramatic social and political change in the United States of America. The gospel frees us not just to submit to authority, but to subvert creatively in the doing of good. Yeah. So in the Lord Jesus, we're free to submit. We're free to subvert. Here's the third thing I want you to see. We are free to serve. Free to serve. Look at verse uh, 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So this is interesting. He's saying, hey, you're free, but understand what that freedom is for. It's not so you can cover up your evil and do whatever you want. You're free in order to live as a servant of God. In America, we love freedom, right? We are all about freedom, but here's what most of our thinking about freedom looks like. We tend to focus on what we are free from right? We're free from tyranny. We're free from monarchy. We're free from the shackles of Great Britain, those colonial oppressors. Now we have our own freedoms, right? Um, Here's what we're not so good at thinking about. What we are free for, right? The gospel says, yeah, yeah, you're free from something, but you're also free for something. Uh, So last year, my daughter took high school civics, and she learned all about the Bill of Rights, and, um, you know, she got really into sort of all this sort of constitutional uh, law. And so here's what she took to doing. When I would say in our house, hey, uh, I need you to do the dishes or I need you to clean your room. She would say, but dad, I have constitutional rights. <laughs> and she started using this bill of rights as language to say, you can't tell me what to do. And so I took to responding this way. Yes, dear, you're right. You have been freed from the tyranny of homelessness. And you are now free for serving the needs of this family with joy. Yeah, you can try that one. You can try that one with your kids this week. So there's freedom from, see, but there's also freedom for. And so what does it mean to live as free people? It means we don't just focus on what we've been freed from. We focus on what we're freed for, which is living as servants of God. Right? This is what Jesus Christ has set you free for. The greatest freedom in all of life. It's to serve God from a liberated heart that loves Him, that wants to see His glory come in the world and His kingdom furthered in the world. And here's the amazing thing about the gospel. Once you become a servant of God, catch this, once you become a servant of God, you can no longer be the servant of any one political party. So here's what happens. Those who have been changed by the gospel... Here's the weird space they occupy. They are people who are too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals. Gospel-changed Christians are too Democrat for the Republicans and too Republican for the Democrats. They're too libertarian for the Greens and too green for the Libertarian. They just don't fit any one political party. Do you know why? Because they live as servants of God. And God's agenda is not the agenda of any one political party. Yeah. So we're free to serve. Free to live as servants of God in the world and work and pray for mercy and justice and beauty and truth in the world. We're free to submit. We're free to subvert. We're free to serve. And finally... The Apostle Peter tells us we are free to honor. You thought it was going to be an S word, didn't you? It's not. Nope. I fooled you. We're free to honor. Look at verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Notice this verse begins and ends with honor. Peter says, first of all, honor everyone. Why is everyone worthy of honor? Friends, because every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being has inherent dignity and worth and value, and they are worth great, worthy of great honor because they bear the image of God. Amen? Yeah. But then notice he goes on to say, remember, he's writing under the reign of Nero. He goes on to say, honor the emperor. Why should I honor Peter, the emperor, who just took my uncle and nailed him to a cross and lit him on fire in the garden because he was a Christian? Why should I honor that emperor, Peter? I mean, can you feel the tension of that? Why is that emperor worthy of honor? Because even that emperor, in spite of his evil, is still a human being made in the image of God. I honor not his actions and not his evil, but I honor his personhood because he's made in the image of God. We're free to honor. Now listen, the opposite of honor is shame. And if you think about what much of our political discourse in America has come to, isn't it fair to say that it basically revolves around shame? Shame on Obama. Shame on Trump. Shame on Clinton. Shame on Fox News. Shame on the New York Times. Shame on this person or that person or this agenda or that agenda, right? Much of our sort of political discourse has just become about shaming one another. Friends, listen to me. Christians don't do shame. We do honor. Christians don't do shame. We do honor. And here's what honor looks like in political discourse. Let's think about this. What does it look like to honor even our opponents, even people we strongly disagree with? Here's what honor looks like. It means treating them as human beings made in the image of God and therefore honoring them even as we contradict their arguments. Right. Right. So it means uh, making intelligent arguments, saying, here's I I disagree with you. And here's why I think you're wrong. And here's why I think that's a bad policy and a bad position. And here's why. Yet I honor you. Um, Wouldn't it think about what it would change if Christians were relentless about honoring our opponents, those who we vehemently disagree with? Like, if we affirmed the dignity of others, even while disagreeing with them, that would sort of change our national dialogue. Wouldn't it? I'll tell you this, it would at least change my Facebook wall. It might not change the world, but I'll tell you what, it would change my social media. If we were just relentlessly committed to honor, right? Jesus says, hey, you're free. And one of the things I've freed you for is to honor everyone. Even wicked people, even evil people, even emperors who are relentlessly committed to your destruction, they're still worthy of honor. What a challenging tension for us to live in, right? To be a people who learn how to practice honor as Jesus tells us, even when we are being dishonored. Mm, That's challenging. So here's what Peter has shown us. You are free because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, free to Submit to authority, free to subvert by doing good, free to serve, and free to honor. This is not a new law mandated for us. This is the new freedom that Jesus brings us into as we become his disciples and are freed from self-love and self-worship into the worship of him and the love of him. This is what the gospel means for our political engagement. It's a whole different way of engaging in politics. So as we prepare to close this morning, I want to ask this question. If this is what we're free for, is this what, if this is what gospel freedom looks like, um, what keeps us from living in this freedom? If this is true and we've been freed in Jesus to submit, to subvert, to serve, and to honor How come sometimes we don't do these? What keeps us from living in this consistently, from being this way? Well, I think there are maybe many answers to that question. I don't know all the answers, but let me suggest one. I think one of the things that keeps us from living in the freedom of the gospel as we engage politics is this. We have a tendency to confuse love with hope. We have a tendency to confuse love with hope. Here's what I mean. You should love your country. Even a country that's as flawed and as broken as the United States of America. It's right to love the place you're from, the place where you're a citizen. But you should not hope in your country. Right? Hope, your hope as a Christian is in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the United States of America and when we confuse love and hope when we th- when we think we're loving our country but really what we're doing is hoping in our country things go sideways in our hearts uh, here's what i mean step back from it and think about political rhetoric think about sort of every political campaign you've ever heard every political commercial you've ever watched don't you realize that every political candidate essentially promises a new exodus Right, The basic political message is, you are in bondage in Egypt, and if you follow me, I'll lead you into the promised land. Make America great again. The audacity of hope. Right, Whatever the slogan is, follow me and I'll lead you into the promised land. Every political campaign is mimicking and mirroring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's just another way of saying... That many politicians, whether they intend to or not, set themselves up as substitute messiahs, right? They are our deliverers, or they promise to be our deliverers. And here's what happens. We start buying into that hope, right? Oh, yeah, maybe this one, maybe this is the hope. Maybe this is the person who can lead us into the new heavens and the new earth. We wouldn't call it that. We wouldn't use that language. But that's the direction our hearts start to lean. Right? We treat our political leaders as sort of stand ins for the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we don't know that we're doing that. It's not like we make a conscious decision to do that, but we get pulled into this language of hope. We confuse love with hope. Friends, here's what I can tell you I've been alive on the earth under eight different US presidents. Some of you have been under a lot more administrations than that, right? And here's what I can tell you. Presidents will come and go. Administrations will rise and fall. Uh, Political parties will come into favor and go out of favor. Political positions will come and go. Political leaders will rise and fall. But the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ endures forever. A hundred years from now... A 100 years from now, none of us will be here. I don't know who will be president and I don't know what will be true of the United States of America, but you know what will still exist? The people of God. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So listen, when our hope becomes focused on politics, uh, when our hope gets placed in America and its progress, it's a misplaced hope. Should we love our country? Yes. Man, should we care about what happens here? Yes. Should we be active in the world and in politics? Yes. But we should never put our hope in the United States of America or in any political leader or political party or political plank or position. Jesus is the only one worthy of our hope. So, yeah, yeah. So, this text this morning gives us the chance to repent of, to acknowledge and turn from, our tendency to misplace our hope. This text invites us to turn our hearts back to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, okay, Jesus is the only one worthy of my hope. So I want to hope in him and I want to live as his servant in the world. So so let me ask you to just do, do a little bit of work in your own soul with me as we sort of close, as we come to the altar this morning. Would you just sort of consider the posture of your own heart? Think about politics think about uh, the last political news you read or the last election you voted in or the last campaign that you got excited about And think about this do you see in your soul in your heart a tendency to become defensive when anyone threatens or criticizes the political positions you espouse and if so can you see that that's connected to misplaced hope Do you see in yourself a tendency to become discouraged and disheartened and hopeless about the state of things? And if so, can you see the connection to misplaced hope? Can you see in your soul a sense of cynicism and apathy? Can you trace that back to misplaced hope? Friends, if your hope is in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what always happens. Disappointment, right? If your hope is in anything but Jesus, guess what? Your hopes will be dashed. That's the downside of hope. (laughs) It can be dashed. It can be disappointed. So how great is it to hope in one who never disappoints? How great is it to have in the Lord Jesus Christ a leader who is worthy of all of our hope and all of our trust in all of our longing, in all of our service, in all of our worship, a leader who never lets us down and who is a sure anchor for all of our hopes. Friends, this morning, let's turn from our misplaced hope and let's put our hope back where it belongs in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose kingdom never fails whose glory never fades let's put our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who promises that he is creating a new heavens and a new earth that's not for one political party not for one social group not for one ethnicity not for one country or one tribe or one nation but for all people everywhere who will trust in him That sounds like an agenda we can get behind, doesn't it? So join me as I pray for us. Let's turn our hearts back to the only one worthy of our hope. Lord Jesus, we repent this morning of our misplaced and misdirected hope. Sometimes... We don't even know that we're putting hope in politics. We, we do it without even realizing that's what we're doing. But as we hear the truth of your word this morning, and as it connects to what's going on in our hearts, we see our tendency to hope in political leaders, political parties, political progress, and our tendency to despair and become disheartened when we don't see that going the direction we want. And so this morning, Father, we want to turn our hearts and our hopes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we want to delight in your kingdom, Jesus, which is transcultural and multinational and global. We want to turn to King Jesus, who uh, invites every people and tribe and tongue and nation to come to him in repentance and faith who does not show any kind of favoritism because of where we were born or what we have or don't have, but rather freely bestows grace on all who come to him. So Jesus, this morning, would you renew our trust in you? Would you renew our hope in you? And then would you um, empower us and awaken us to live on mission in the world around us? Father, would you make us not less politically active, but more hopefully politically active because our hope is in the right place? Would you help us to work for justice and mercy and goodness and truth and beauty in the world? Would you help us to move out in love for our neighbors? Would you help us to be active in society, rooted in the hope we have in you? So Jesus, restore our hearts to the right place this morning. Bring us back to trust and hope only in you. Help us to love our country, but not to hope in it. Help us to remember we belong to you. We hope in you and we rest and trust in your good promises of redemption, of deliverance, and of peace. We love you, praise you, and thank you this morning in your name.
1: hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and his righteousness thank god we can have a a rightly placed hope today it's not in any political party or political person but it's in our lord jesus christ so grateful for that if you'd all stand with me this morning um I am so glad I came to church today, and I'm so glad we invited Pastor Bob to join us today. Can we give him a great big thank you? uh, Amen. I'm so thankful for the word of God and how the, the Bible is so relevant for us today. And how if Peter in his day could say, honor the emperor, How much more can we honor the emperor? How how much more can we honor those in authority? Even if we disagree, we can honor, right? Because they're human beings. May our political rhetoric honor the king. And the king, are you with me? I want you to be encouraged to be part of your small groups this week as we take this message and we, we work it out, and we apply it to our everyday lives, I would encourage you to go online, listen again and again and again, but let's not just, the conversation's not over here. Let's continue on the conversation in our everyday lives. I'm going to invite our prayer workers to come forward. If you are here today and you realize today maybe you have a misplaced hope in, in how to be saved, how to be right with God, um, and you've put your hope in what you can do, For God to accept you. I want you to know this morning that there is nothing you can do to cause God to love you. There's nothing you can do except to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And allow Jesus and his blood to wash you. To wash away all your sin. And make you right with God. If you're here today and you need to place your hope in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to come and meet briefly after the service with one of our prayer workers. And they'll pray with you today. A simple prayer of repentance, being right with God. So I encourage you to do that. If you have any other prayer needs, we encourage you to come as well. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you. God bless you. Have a great week in Jesus.